What have you been up to this week? What I've been up to Apart this week? Apart from drawing. Apart from doodling on the <laughs> Apart train. Apart from playing with crayons. <laughs> I did enjoy that. I also enjoyed the very odd looks when I started to draw stained toilet paper from the, <laughs> from the three salesmen next to me. Probably because you were hunched over your pen, over the paper with your tings, your tongue sticking out. Yes, precisely that. Well, do you know what? I'm going to make sure that this bit makes the cut. Yep. I'm going to make sure that this bit makes the cut. So for the audience, what I was doing yesterday is I was taking some of our favourite characters that we have created over the years. I think over the years, over the year, and <laughs> turning some of them into really shitty drawings using blue biro <laughs> and a packet deliberately of, shitty, yeah, and a packet of uh, children's BBC branded crayons I picked up for fifty p from a shop. Uh, yeah, de- deliberately shitty, deliberately. I'm genuinely a very good art. I'm not. I'm fucking awful. <laughs> and this is all part of a new website we're building, which will have lots more fun stuff on it. Yay! Uh, more on whoop, that. Whoop. Anon. I think that's probably going to launch in uh, you know, a month or so, maybe, I guess. Maybe sooner, maybe later. Yeah, Who knows? Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to helping you out with that. It's, I mean, I'm a big, I am a big, big fan of bad cartoons, and I mean that in a good way. Wow. So, <laughs> when you get. of them. Because <laughs> if, if, your cartoons are excellent, because you've oh. clearly got a very vivid <laughs> imagination, so you're, you're trying to put onto paper your what is in your imagination and you're not quite doing it which is what makes it so funny <laughs> that's, and that's yes. why I think yours are brilliant and that is, they're that better fair, that's a fair critique of my art <laughs> and, but you can see what's going on so that you're, in my opinion your cartoons are better than someone who's been to art school um, well, and is overthinking it and making I love it. I absolutely love slightly <laughs> naff cartoons. They're brilliant. So I really enjoyed seeing yours. Who have we done so far? We've done Flannel Washbottom. The Stoily Fondue Jazz Quartet have been brought to life. <laughs> That's particularly good. Yes. And Morris Wilton from the latest episode, I decided to have a crack at him as well. <laughs> Excellent. They're very, very good. Um, very, very good. You know, I, to be honest with you, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure I can meet your standard. <laughs> because you can draw. <laughs> because my drawing is a little bit better. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm actually going to be able to get that rustic feel, um, rustic charm. <laughs> my artwork is what would be described as derelict. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very very good. Hello and welcome to another episode of That Was Genius, the little history podcast, which is I think we're a year old now. I think possibly. Oh wow. Yeah, happy first birthday. We're just learning to read. Sure? Is that for real? Is that for real? I think it might be for real. Oh no, it probably was because we released the first three on the same day. So actually it probably is the first anniversary of us recording our first episode, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. God, I think there was We should have popped open some champagne. Shouldn't we? <laughs> As it is, I've got a glass of water and you've got a cup of tea, haven't you? So Tea and squash. The breakfast of champions. <laughs> So yes, happy birthday to us. We're learning to read, slowly learning to babble our way through the English language. And the French language. And the French language. And Greek's still a bit of a mystery, but we're giving it a go. <laughs> yeah, we try to pronounce Greek words, yeah. <laughs> so yes, happy birthday us. Have a celebratory pat on the back and a slap on the bottom. There you go. <laughs> Yes, hello and welcome to That Was Genius, the one-year-old history podcast in which two friends on different sides of the world exchange historical stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme the week beforehand, but everything else that happens is a surprise. And what is the topic this week, Tom? The topic this week, courtesy of a listener, 
is serial killers. Yay! Another fun one. <laughs> yeah, serial killers. I'm not saying killers. that we've got the January blues. Well, actually, it's summer where you are, so you've got no excuse. But in the last couple of weeks, we've done genocide and serial killers. We are keeping it light, people. <laughs> I've worked hard though to make this one fun this week. I've got a, I've Ooh. got a particularly what fun a story. I think. I think you'll enjoy it. I mean, I was. I'm sure you're probably the same, but I was pretty keen to avoid the sort of macabre societal rubbernecking that is sort of oh you never guess what ted bundy did oh so i tried to avoid that sort of no i've gone right down that route (laughs) oh have you yeah fuck it (laughs) i've done murdery murdery murderers (laughs) oh aunt murder's lovely oh i love it i love finding out about murderers it's disgusting what they got up to do you kind of get off on it well i don't get off on it do you know um there's a thing in germany there was a trial they ran where if there was a road accident and people were caught rubbernecking by the police rubbernecking is craning your head to look at an accident they would force the drivers to stop and come up and look at the damage and look at the victims that's right yeah i remember that yeah yeah i oh, know it, it wasn't it a one-off it was a police officer that is a one-off was it just he? a one was it just a one-off officer going yeah. rogue uh, yeah. okay oh maybe you're no, i can't remember but I, I do remember seeing that in the news i think you might be right and then people were walking up to it and going ah okay maybe not <laughs> There was a, good, a couple of good articles I read about why people are fascinated by the macabre. Yeah, it's quite interesting. There's a, there's a, a booming trade in memorabilia for serial killers as well, isn't there? Oh yes, yeah. You pay you pay good money for a, a bit of the floorboard under which a victim was buried. Mm. Absolutely. And on, on that subject, I mean, Fred West's house I think had to be demolished brick it did by stop brick. Souvenir hunters. <laughs> That's right. There's all sorts of weird, weird souvenirs. Sort of the a, a lock of the hair of a serial killer or the knife that was used by a serial killer to strip the skin off a victim. It's just horrible stuff. I mean, who wants that? So welcome to this episode of That Was Genius. <laughs> <laughs> I found kind of like a funny, slightly incompetent early modern serial killer. How's that? That's pretty good. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> I, I haven't gone funny with mine Inher- inherently funny but i've gone indian this week i've gone for some of the murderous cults of india from uh, long long ago not modern murdery cults in india there are still some but some of the older ones <laughs> um, so okay you've got indian indian oldie indian ye oldie indian or more modern indian well i'm actually doing two stories today so i'm going one very ye oldie indian and one quite ye oldie to surprisingly modern indian E E Indian. Okay, nice. Right. Yeah. Very good. And the origin of a very popular word in the English language as well. When discussing hoodlums Ah. and bad folk. Chavs? (laughs) Kevs? Carnies. Circus folk. (laughs) Bogans. That's a very new that's a very uh, New Zealand Australia term that. West Coasters. Westies. Feel more comfortable. Westies. People on the West Coast, yeah, Six Fingers. Right. Well, I'm curious to hear about your slightly shitty serial killer, Tom. So, should we flip something murdery? Let's flip something murdery. Well, funny you mention that. I've got Jack the Ripper's underpants. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> Bought off eBay. <laughs> yes. For £30,000. Not... <laughs> Someone's creaming it in of stupid people. Oh, no, don't um, say the no, word, I don't have don't anything say the word creaming it in when talking about someone's underpants. Especially not Jack the Rippers. And also, have you just got a man called Jack's Ripped Underpants? Because it's not the same thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Jack's Rippers. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was. It was Jack, Jack's Rippers. 
It's just a pair of pants that I someone's thought they had a smelled. massive fart in. <laughs> Jack had one talent at school, and that was he could fart very, very loudly on demand. He could fart loud enough to murder a prostitute, turns out. And so loudly that everyone ran in the opposite <laughs> direction, so nobody knew it was him. Very difficult... <laughs> Very difficult to find. <laughs> One of my favourite songs is Mac the Knife, and um, I, in my head I'm rewriting it as we speak to Jack the Guff. Well, the shark deer releases bubbly ones. <laughs> the melt on the waves. Jack the Guffer does big green ones <laughs> that emanate. In cartoon waves. When you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a musty cloud, hold your nose, dear, as you enter. Otherwise, you'll die on the way out. I liked it, Sam. Yeah. That's something else we're going to do for the website, I've decided, is a load of comedy history songs. <laughs> right, excellent. Good. So if you I'm, like that... I'm, I have such musical talent. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> I like it. My contribution... My contribution will be throwing a ball, Sam. <laughs> See how you like that? <laughs> I can't throw balls. <laughs> Running without sounding like an elephant. That's what I'm going to contribute. <laughs> if we can... <laughs> If we're going to make each other don't, feel bad with the website content. <laughs> don't mock my flat feet and complete lack of hand-eye coordination. <laughs> right, let's flip your pants. Toss. <laughs> to- to- again, don't say toss when I haven't got pants. pants, it was a joke. All right, well, I've got a dirty laundry basket over here. Let me just go and find go a, grab a knife. the nearest pair of pants. Grab a knife. Right, I have a pair of pants with dinosaurs on them and speech bubbles going rah, rah, rah. And no, they're not mine. <laughs> right. Your wife has odd taste, doesn't she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want the derriere or the frontier? I'll have the, I'll have the, the gusset. <laughs> I just can't believe I've just thrown my child's dirty underpants <laughs> up in the air. Right, you've got the gusset, you choose... <laughs> Why don't you go first, Tom? Right, okay. Do, are we That's doing Viagra bird. in the water this week? No, I am learning it. I have started to learn it. I've got the chords. Fuck was, me, Sam. How long is this going to take? This is a slow burning joke, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard song. Da, 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 da. Oi. Hey. Viagra in the water, as we promised several episodes ago, we were going to sing by four bitchin' babes, will be covered by two daring dicks over the course of the next uh, the next week. Um, all right. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll try and learn this. I'll try and learn it this week, and I'll just tack it onto this episode. So, if I've managed to learn it and play a version of it over the course of this week, it should start now. Right. Well, it turns out I did actually manage to find half an hour, and so here is about half of Viagra in the Water performed as well as you can expect someone to perform in half an hour's free time. I do apologise. If you like good music or you don't like music at all, skip forward three minutes. Uh, If you like absolutely atrocious music, though, this is two verses of Viagra in the Water. (laughs) Performed by Sam. Just outside of Johnson City on a dark and twisting room 
In a Kenworth 18-wheeler with a heavy shift in load He was pushing through to Binghamton though the hour's getting late Fires his finest on a mission to the pharmacies upstate He was on a holy mission, there were men who couldn't wait It was 20,000 pounds of Viagra Seven hundred miles since he climbed into the ring. Just another twenty-five or so would finish up that gig. But the trailer hit an oil slick and down the hill did fly till it landed at the bottom of the town's water supply. It was instant rigor mortis. What a hard way to die. Save your son, shielded daughters, there's Viagra in the water. Getting sidetracked. All over Johnson City, people rising with the dawn. <sighs> Drank their morning coffee, took their showers, watered lawns. And who could have predicted all the changes up ahead? Getting up for work and going back to bed So many called in sick you would have thought a virus spread Down at the courthouse coffee shop they stared in disbelief As a pack of thirsty lawyers started filling out their briefs Objection. But at the local college young men appeared much smarter No chromosome or mystery, they simply studied harder now water on the rocks is the latest party starter. Save your sun, shield your daughters. There's Viagra in the water. The Johnson City firemen, they cursed their wretched luck. Oh, for fuck's sake. They couldn't get their fire hoses wound back on the truck. Sprinkling is sp- <laughs> Fucking hell. Come on, son, you can do this. Shield yourself, save your daughters. There's Viagra in the water. That is not the song, but I have not picked up a guitar in three years, and that's the best we're going to get. Well, I, I'm not going to all the all the practice I put in this week. I'm not going to let go to miss Sam. So you are going to hear my this. I've been practicing this a lot. You're going to hear, come what may, my impression of Billy Ray Cyrus. Am I going to hear <clears> it right now? Okay. You are going to hear it right now. <clears throat> come what may. <clears throat> don't break my heart. My heart make it hard. I can't it on stage. That is beautiful, and for a classic '90s TV reference, sounds an awful lot like the club sing around from Shooting Stars, a show it we was, have mentioned several yeah, I times. Thought that. <laughs> I was trying to avoid that. I was actually just trying to do well, my impression of Billy Ray Cyrus. You failed it, miserably. It, 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 but then Billy Ray Cyrus does sound a little bit like just a Kentucky pub singer. 
doesn't he? That he does. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Um, we do listener feedback as well before I start. Okay, let's do let's do listener feedback and then let's crack on because we're half an hour into the recording as bloody per and we haven't said a word of history. <laughs> you didn't you allude to the fact that someone's been giving us some critical feedback? Is that a bit that I've missed? Is that something? Yes. I've missed? Uh, thank you, Mango Man, for getting in touch. Oh, Mango Mango Man. Mango Mango Man, who listens I to the podcast. To be a Mango, a mango man. man listens to our podcast in his car every day uh, and says that he loves us and it helps with his anxiety while he's driving but said that the episode on laughter was not very good <laughs> not very funny quite <laughs> <laughs> no no it was the one that wasn't very funny you remember oh no my part my part wasn't very funny the one where you brought <laughs> the joke book along <laughs> yeah that wasn't a not very funny joke but it was funny because it wasn't funny I yes. thought the bit with the emperor was quite funny, and I think the emperor is going to be quite unhappy if he finds <laughs> out that Mango Mango Man has been criticising that episode. Hey, um, might well be. <laughs> Trina Van Haw- Trina Van Hawkins Trina Van Hawkins has gotten in touch again to suggest we do historical sidekicks as a topic, which I think is a great idea, but might be tricky because unfortunately no one no one writes about sidekicks. No. <laughs> historical was, backups. Um, yeah, well, let's put that let's put that in the back pocket. I've got a good suggestion for next week though. I'll, I'll tell Go you on. And then thank you, RT Support 7757, which suggests there's 7,756 other RT Supports, who says, spent most of the week binging. That was genius at work. Very funny stuff. Yeah, I agree. Bloody Good. funny. Someone sent us a picture of a mug that said that had Top Bloke written on it. They found a Top Bloke Oh, yeah, I mug. saw that one. I can't find good. it now. I can't find it. It's Why all right. They it? know who they are. They know who they are. They know who you. they are. Thank you to that oh, person. Amanda. That was thank funny. Thank you, Amanda Ovi who uh, sent us a picture of the Top Bloke Award mug. Talking of Top Bloke, Sam, I'm now going to segue into some history. Oh, thank fuck for that. Yes. <sighs> Before telling you about what I'm going to talk about, oh. who I've alluded <laughs> to the fact that it's Top Bloke, no, I'm just tell like me to, I'd like to... S- no, I'm going to set the scene, Sam. Okay? okay. I'm going to set the scene. We're talking Van Diemen's Land. Early 19th century, Crims, as far as the eye can see but not very top blokes. Not right? top not blokes. Not Van top Diemen's blokes. Land is uh, Tasmania, isn't it? It is indeed Tasmania. And for those people who are not familiar with anywhere outside the United States, Tasmania is the island off the, off the southeast coast of Australia. It was called Van Diemen's Land up until 1853, and then it was changed to Tasmania after... Van Diemen lost it Yes, in a game of cards. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I couldn't find out... When an Australian stole it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't understand why they changed it from one Dutch person's name to another Dutch person's name because it's Tasmania is off after Abel Tasman, the Dutch explorer. Oh, is it? Who, as far as I'm aware, it is. I didn't actually read that anywhere. That's just me assuming so. Who discovered and he discovered Tasmania in 1642, but it wasn't until 1799 when Tasmania was first circumnavigated and discovered to be a rather large island. Um, so there you have it. A brief history of Tasmania. Uh, yes, it's also Fun an times. Abel Tasman district in New Zealand as well because Abel Tasman discovered parts of New Zealand anyway for the first half of the 19th century Tasmania and I'll call it Tasmania instead of Van Diemen's Land from now on in was Australia's preeminent penal colony in the region of 70,000 convicts were sent there over the course of about 50 years individuals convicted of less serious crimes were made to work for free settlers basically manual jobs which often wasn't too far away from what they were doing back in Great Britain and Ireland Whereas the more serious criminals were locked up in a prison, like um, the one at Port Arthur, which is one of the most famous ones. 
And Port Arthur was a bit like the Australian Alcatraz. In fact, all of these penal colony prisons were very difficult to get out of in, in really remote places. Rather amusingly, a convict once tried to escape Port Arthur by dressing up as a kangaroo and hopping towards freedom. <laughs> the guards, however, were so hungry that they started lining him up to shoot him because they just wanted to eat some kangaroo, at which point he took off the kangaroo outfit and went, well, all right, hands up. All right, it was me. All right, all right, don't shoot. <laughs> and they ate him anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, talking about eating other humans, that leads Ooh. us on nicely to me introducing Alexander Pierce, an Irishman transported to Australia for stealing six pairs of shoes, Sam. Seems reasonable. And the primary sources, and I did some research on this, are unclear as to whether or not he had six pairs of feet. <laughs> that information, that piece of information was in Lost to History. We don't know. So, listeners, if you are trying to conjure up images in your head as I tell this story, feel free to imagine Pierce with as many legs as you like. He could yes. be a centaur, a millipede, whatever you like. It's entirely possible he actually had 20 pairs of shoes already, but unfortunately his uh, 26 pairs of legs, <laughs> six of them were getting rather chilly. <laughs> Who can say? Worn out. A little bit like your back tyres. Yeah. They're just getting worn out too quickly. Ab- absolutely, yeah. yes. He was cornering so too I, fast. I, I know what you mean. Stealing six pairs of shoes doesn't seem like too big a crime to be sent all the way to the other side of the world. But alas, clearly the British Empire decided that these, these places needed to be colonised. And it was a good excuse. And a fine origin as well of the Australian tradition of keeping people who arrive on boats on an island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In very, in very poor conditions, yeah. yeah. Anyway, after committing other minor crimes in Tasmania, Pierce was transferred to Macquarie Harbour Penal Station, which was in the arse end of nowhere on the island of Fucknose, just off the continent of how the hell did we get here? So that was very, that very It's a very remote. Australian name. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most Australian series of place names I've ever heard. Or known by its original Aboriginal name of Wallabolongongolongolong. So yeah, so he ended up in a, in another penal prison. On September the 20th, 1822, Pierce escaped with seven other convicts who had been cutting down trees as part of their penal work. One of them, a chap called Greenhill, happened to have the axe at the time and so announced, much in the same way as Gary Glitter, that he was the leader of the gang. Just not dressed the same. He was probably dressed slightly more drab than Gary Glitter. <laughs> What a guy's a reference. <laughs> I could be wrong. Again, the historical sources are vague. Yes, well, yeah. Uh, Pierce is going to make Gary Glitter look like a ups- fine, upstanding member of society quite soon. And Greenhill's right-hand man was a chap called Travis. They were sort of best mates. Greenhill and Travis sounds like a great club singing <laughs> duo from the 70s, doesn't it? <laughs> Green- Green- or a radio a radio pairing. <laughs> yeah, a slightly oh, racist comic Greenhill pairing. Greenhill and Travis. <laughs> 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 the greatest hits from the 70s and 60s and beyond now here's Buck's Fizz I'm 15 days into the escape <laughs> we're making our minds up that we love it carry on <laughs> that's alright quite, quite okay 15 days into the escape and I'd like to invite listeners now to recall some of our other episodes where we've highlighted how useless Europeans were when it came to trying to survive in Australia <laughs> on their own the group yep. started to get a bit peckish Sam Now, rather than looking for food in the traditional way, you know, the way humans have survived for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, how our hominid ancestors have survived for millions of years, you know, that whole hunting and gathering malarkey, you know, perhaps a spot of fishing for for mindfulness, maybe whack a kangaroo over the back of the head, or perhaps, you know, use a Tasmanian devil to whisk up some uh, emu eggs 
and have some scrambled yeah, eggs for dinner. It's a beautiful omelette. Yeah, exactly. There's plenty of things you could do. No, they decided to eat each other. Um, of course so... they did. Of course they did. <laughs> and I'm putting it out there. They seemed rather keen to eat each other. <laughs> but I don't know. Perhaps this is why they were living on the other side of the world. Go on, um, please. Yeah, in the penal colony. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I've always wanted to <laughs> they, they actually just waited 15 days until it seemed like a reasonable time to pretend to be desperate enough to have to try and eat each other. <laughs> they were gunning for this from day one. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, you know, that's not far away from some of the other things I'm going to dis- discuss shortly. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, while these guys were struggling to, to work out how to how to hunt and were deciding they were going to eat each other, Charles Babbage was discovering early computers, Sam. was developing oh. early computers. There you go. So, you know, two ends of the spectrum. Two ends of the intelligence <laughs> spectrum there. Anyway, a chap called Dalton... Waltzing Matilda, waltz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Who knows, in 50 years' time, Australians might also create the rudimentary elements of a computer. Or a political system that has some sort of stability. <laughs> yes, basic function. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, the, where the Prime Minister is in his position for longer than three days. Dalton is Julie Eaton, this chap called Dalton. And um, that was quite an easy choice, because back in the penal colony, he had been a flogger which was a role, a very unpopular role, of course, which is where one of the convicts would whip everyone if they were caught for various misdemeanours. So Dalton was eaten quite early on. Um, he also had, you know, he looked quite nice. He was quite tasty. Um, had a habit of <laughs> Beautiful you know, marinating himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lynx Africa <sighs> used to spray it on. Wonderful marinade. Another chap called Boddenham, also seems to have been eaten quite quickly, although in a slightly more democratic, should we say, way, where they all drew lots, and, uh, and Boddenham seemed to have lost out there. I imagine the idea of drawing lots was a good idea until you <laughs> discovered it was you that was going to get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at which point you probably would have put up a fight. <laughs> I didn't agree to this. No, no, I definitely did agree to this. A few of the gang got a bit put off by all this eating each other. And, and ran off on their own. They actually got back to the penal colony in the room. The rumour, the, the suggestion is that they were punished um, for their attempted escape and just not given any food. And they quite quickly starved on top of the fact that they'd been away for a couple of weeks without eating anything other than other people's toes. <laughs> so this left four people, Sam. It left Pierce, axe-wielding Greenhill, his mate Tavers and a chap called Mather. And um, I don't imagine at this point that there was too much trust between the four of them. <laughs> no. <laughs> having, having demonstrated their willingness, albeit sometimes by drawing lots, to eat each other quite easily, quite quickly. Uh, Mathers seems to have gone next. Um, then Tavers fell ill from a tiger snake bite. And um, he was carried for about five days before they decided actually that snake bite was slowly going up his leg and potentially ruining the meal. Um, so... <laughs> Not the, so kind, not the, the kind of marinating you want. No, <laughs> chop, chop, chop off the leg and have the rest for tea. So he got killed with an axe and eaten. And Standard. Yeah, yep, yum, yum, yum. How quickly are they eating people? They seem to be getting through them at a rate well, of one every the... couple of days. How much meat are they eating? Absolutely. I think they were probably a bunch of Australian gym bunnies, weren't they? Who just needed their protein intake. <laughs> just bleached blonde hair. <laughs> yeah, chest shaving steroid-abusing Australian gym bunnies called Shine. And, uh, yeah, so then there were two, and much like the culmination of a great thriller movie, it came down to this great standoff between the two major antagonists, you know, your De Niro and Pacino in Heat, 
That's the sort of situation we've got here. <laughs> oh, I like that. That'd be a good movie version, wouldn't it? <laughs> what if they, they fought to the dead and then ate each other? <laughs> well, I must have been, what are by you the time doing? I got to the by the time I got to the end of the Irishman, I was eating my own foot. I'd, it'd been so long since I had a meal. <laughs> <laughs> how long? How long is that film? I've not seen the Irishman yet. Is it any good? Uh, firstly, it's very very good, but it's a good three months long. Um, it, <laughs> it's it a full on sound on. of music. <laughs> oh, gone with the wind. Sound of music. Yeah. Well, most people are gone with the wind by the time it finishes. Eventually, <laughs> <laughs> Jack the Guff Deer <laughs> ate too much protein. <laughs> Human bodies for everywhere. <laughs> His bowels weren't moving. He hadn't had fiber. <laughs> he was clogged up right to the tonsils. <laughs> When he farted, pow, everybody could smell it. <laughs> it was like a Australian wildfire. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> Too bloody soon. <laughs> there was a smog all the way over to New Zealand. The sun didn't come out because of his ass. Bow, bow. That's actually true. We spent New Year's uh, New Year's Day on a beach in a little town called Akaroa, and it was a very very strange sky, and it was the smog coming over from Australia. Wow! So it wasn't it, it wasn't the most exciting um, culmination to uh, to a story because basically neither of them trusted each other, as you'd imagine, and yep. so they both refused to sleep <laughs> for about eight days. Until... Nothing's going to make you less murdery than not sleeping for eight days. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually Green Hill succumbed and got popped over the edge by Pierce, who then had him for breakfast. <laughs> oh dear. And there you go. So anyway, eventually, after eating his way through the group, Pierce made his way to a sheep station where he bumped in bizarrely whilst eating a sheep to an old friend, another escaped convict, uh, who's part of a sheep-stealing <laughs> ring. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this mate of his, this ex-convict, was part of a, a, this convict was part of a sheep-stealing ring. So he's sort of like, oh, mate, how are you? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, not too bad. About, about three months in the wilderness, just eating people. Just the normal, just the normal. Yeah, could really do with some chia seeds, I must admit, just to get things flowing. Maybe some kiwis, some kiwi juice. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had a pooaroonie in weeks, mate. <laughs> I need to drop a dogalogalog. <laughs> what is a dogalog over there, mate? You can hear. Um, have you got a dunny? I need to go. I need to drop a dogalog in your dunny. I really do. <laughs> By the time I've finished, it won't be such a long drop. <laughs> By the way, don't worry. It's uh, they're not they're not teeth. That's corn. Just been eating a lot of. Corn, some of which is uh, shaped like molars. Ignore that. <laughs> Have you been eating Rolex watches? <laughs> <laughs> well, that looks remarkably like a sock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just find it helps it pass through. You know, I like to <laughs> like to eat the occasional sock. Cotton is fibre. Cotton is fibre. And after after three months of hiking through the wilderness, it's got a wonderful cheesy tang. <laughs> you know, it's like my favourite breakfast cereal, boots and fibre. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, it wasn't long before Pierce was caught and sent back to Macquarie Prison. 
he actually at this point tells his story to a few people and they don't believe him. They think he's covering for the other convicts, covering for their escape. <laughs> so to prove it, he ate the guards too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he gets given a psychiatrist and uh, the psychiatrist suggests that the two of them go back and, and retrace some of his steps just to help him with his therapy. And uh, that psychiatrist then got eaten. Um <laughs> Pierce comes back, he gets given another psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist but goes, this Hold time, on, mate. definitely, definitely don't eat him. He's like, mate, no, I'm not going to be the next shrink on the Barbie, mate. <laughs> hey! <laughs> and all that psychiatry bullshit was just setting me up for that joke. <laughs> there were no psychiatrists. Oh, so right. <laughs> it was just oh. a shrink on a Barbie joke that I had to try and squeeze in. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, no, so he did tell his story to some people and they didn't believe him. Within a year, he escaped again at the persuasion of a young convict called Thomas Cox. And no, Cox tint tastes like apples when Pierce quite quickly decided to eat him. <laughs> In fact, when Pierce was caught by authorities, he had parts of Cox's body in his pockets. You know, oh. a bit of man jerky, pepperami legarami. <laughs> the phrase, a bit of man jerky. Well, firstly, episode title. Secondly, <laughs> I quite like pepperami leggy army. Precisely, <laughs> I like pepperami leggy army. Yes, but what is man jerky? <laughs> it's, it's, it's like beef jerky. But well, yes, but made of man. It sounds an awful. I don't know lot where like you. I don't, a... know, I don't know how it could be anything else. Okay, Sam? fine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a pocket full of dicks. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not bread sauce. Right. But yes, yeah, so Pierce actually had proper food on his person when he was found as well. So he had like, <laughs> he had a couple of chocolate bars, he had a Snickers, he had a little little beef burger he'd be keeping aside, a couple of packets of instant noodles. But he decided to go for Thomas Cox because Thomas Cox looked delicious, mate. The area around where Pierce was found was, was searched shortly after he was discovered and the body of Cox was discovered midway through being butchered. Like, you know, it's been disemboweled. It was being cut into steaks and things. It's quite possible that Pierce wasn't actually full-on psychopath because he actually gave himself up to the to the authorities. He actually he actually flagged down a boat. According to some of the accounts, he was feeling incredibly guilty um, about his act of butchering cocks for food. What about all of the others yet? <laughs> what well, about the other yeah, six? I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it is a funny one. It is a funny one. Anyway, Pierce was hung on 19th of July, 1824. And um, the Hobart Town Gazette uh, sort of suggested he didn't look much like a cannibal. Which, <laughs> which, <laughs> Not which, like those <laughs> other cannibals. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, what does a cannibal look like? I mean, probably in the, uh, probably in the 19th century, it probably looked like a, a, an African with a bone through the nose, didn't it? Based on... Uh, Victorian racial sensitivity. Well, yes, certain certain stereotypes. Anyway, a quote, laden with the weight of human blood and believed to have banqueted on human flesh. Uh, They said he didn't look much like a a serial killer. In that case, he must be innocent. Release him. (laughs) That is the story of Alexander Pierce. Lovely. A a chap who just liked eating people. And you know why that was such a good topic, Sam? It's because the people he was eating were convicts. So I'm quite happy to make fun of it. That's true. And they committed such heinous crimes as stealing Stealing handkerchiefs. (laughs) (laughs) Swearing as a judge. Being poor. 
<laughs> yeah, starving and wanting <laughs> to feed themselves. They deserved everything they got and more. And people joke about Australia being a dangerous country to be in today, but it must have been even more dangerous when the only people you would meet around the countryside were roving maniacs. <laughs> This is what it sounds like. An occasional it? We, lost British explorers. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Tripping we've balls. Talked, we've done a lot of Australian outback adventures in the 19th century. And I remember one of them uh, that I did, it was a survival story, wasn't it? And on this survival story, they were encountering bands of escaped convicts who didn't know what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the, we're talking about the ones that have been recorded. It sounds like the Australian continent during the 19th century was just full of... Marauding, marauding, lost, starving criminals, lost, starving criminals being laughed at by the Aboriginals as, as they tried to eat what was it, tiger snakes, which apparently were incredibly poisonous. Yes, or just any bit of tree they could find. Chewing on some bark. Yeah. It's, it's delicious, mate. There's a there's a dollar wonga tree behind you, mate. Lovely fruit. Plenty of it as well. You don't need to chew the bark. It's literally, it's doing that thing that only this tree does of literally handing down the fruit to you (laughs) on a vine. No, I will eat these ants. They look delicious. (laughs) I much prefer the look of this frog. (laughs) It's got a beautiful glow to it. (laughs) You know, the frog that's got an emu next to it, a dead emu. (laughs) (laughs) Just surrounded by piles of dead animals. (laughs) Bones, bone graveyard surrounding this tiny, cute little frog. Oh, good times, good times. Australia. Not very top blokes. Not very top blokes. No. Dead blokes. Lots of dead blokes. (laughs) Missing uh, one or two fingeroonies. (laughs) Well, that was very interesting, Tom. Last week I promised that I wasn't going to do an eccentric Brit today, and I I haven't. I managed to not do one. The British do appear slightly later on, but only in a passing role. So I'm giving this one to myself. Are they incompetent when they do appear? Uh, not specifically, no. They're just well, you've kind done of well. present. I, this is almost like a stage in your in your therapy, isn't it? Personal development, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you're <laughs> withdrawing from the habit. This is good. Yeah. C-B-E-T. Cognitive British Empire Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> We do take all of those bad thoughts about the British Empire and turn them into positive thoughts. <laughs> We've been doing that for a hundred years, Sam. <laughs> yes, that's what happens in school. <laughs> so yes, speaking. <laughs> I mean, I'm not wrong. <laughs> oh, very good. That's called <laughs> that's called a comprehensive school education, Sam. <laughs> a comprehensive school. A comprehensive school education. As opposed to the kind of holistic education you get at a grammar school. Grammar school! <laughs> or a private school. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe I'd have had a more rounded education if I went to Eaton. <laughs> yes. So anyway, Tom, I'm doing two stories today, as I said earlier, and I'm going to take us to India to look at some of the country's most famous, or infamous, I should say, uh, historical assassin and murder cults. Where Ooh. do we stand with Indian accents, Sam? Is that... <laughs> Is that acceptable? Uh, well, as someone who is quarter Indian, I think that I'm absolutely fine, and you're just going to have to hold your tongue. I'm going to have to, burn, if or I'm going to burn in hell for my sins. <laughs> if we were being strictly fair, we could do any accent, can't we? Because you know that's just treating everyone <laughs> no, equally. If we're being strictly fair, Tom, we can't do any accent. <laughs> no, no. 
because we can't do a French accent, we can't do a German accent, so by right, it's certainly we can't do an Indian accent. accent. It's just fashion that we're not allowed to do Indian accents, but we can do French ones. And we're not allowed to do African accents, but you know, it's just fashion. That's all it is. It is. I'm going to do lots of Indian accents in the next 20 minutes. Are you? Good. Well, I'll have to use the anti-Indian accent filter on the sound editing software then. <laughs> Deracify. <laughs> Yes, it is just fashion, and at some point, 70s comedy, much like bell-bottom jeans, will come back into fashion. But until then, Bernard Manning, keep a lid on it. Sorry, come again? I didn't hear that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of opportunities in this story to mock India without going into actually doing the accents. I've got lines about food poisoning. I've got lines about cricket. You've got... <laughs> what is wrong with doing the accent? There's nothing wrong with it. I've, I've got. I trained some Indian, uh, an Indian guy, and he loves oh, my Indian accent. That makes it fine. He, then, th- doesn't he it? thinks my Indian accent's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for him. Anyway, Tom. At least, at least I tell myself that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he hasn't repeat booked me. It's because he's still <laughs> laughing so hard he can't pick up the phone. <laughs> I say, client. I've trained him once. Yes. <laughs> It lasted 10 minutes. I say, client, he was just a man on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't even Indian. He was just a general ethnic minority. And I chose to... (laughs) I think he was... I think he was actually possibly Iraqi. (laughs) (laughs) He looked at me and said... First of all, I was born in Brixton. Secondly, my my great-grandfather was from Hong Kong. So you've got it all wrong. Right. Anyway, the first cult... I'm going, to, I'm going to look at some of India's murderous cults today. And the first is a badass crew of very, very, very murderous women. Ooh. So I'm going to take us back to the 3rd century BC. So I told you I was going old, and I've managed to go very oh, old. Yeah and a semi-mythical group known as the Vishakanyas. Not to be confused with the Kanya Westers, who like to murder, but they like to do it harder, better, faster and stronger than the uh, Vishakanyas. Their story is like, a, it's a proper kind of superhero origin story. And we mostly know about it from an ancient treaty on politics called the, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong the first time I try it, Arthur Shastra. I think it would be racially insensitive, Sam, actually. Can you stop pronouncing things in such a racist way? Shut up. Um, Arthur, <laughs> Arthur Shastra, by the way, also a 1970s racist comedian. Arthur Shastra. Arthur Shastra. My mother-in-law is so fat. <laughs> now, the Arthur Shastra is written by a guy called Chanakya, who was the Prime Minister of India. Why have I done this to myself? During the reign of Chang- <laughs> Chandra Gupta. They were Prime Ministers all the way back then. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. He was the chief vizier and prime minister of India during the reign of Chandra Gupta, the first leader of the Maurya Empire from 340 to 293 BC. And that is a string of names I can't pronounce, which <laughs> I'm getting them all out of the way in the first paragraph. How many listeners do we have in India? Mm, one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> None. And this guy... Chandra Gupta was an absolute genius when it came to meddling because he knew that there was only one weakness that every rival Indian leader had that he could exploit and that Tom was cricket all the way back in the third century BC <laughs> yep quick game of 2020 bonk over the head willow against skull jobs are good and like a like a bit of cashmere willow yeah okay <laughs> yep bit of IPL yeah 
Yeah, it, it wasn't cricket, Tom. It was girls. Girls. Okay, that's more sensible. It was girls. So he created, as a result of uh, of this weakness of men, the Vishakanya movement. Now, Vishakanya were essentially beautiful young girls raised from a young age to perform two roles. Firstly, their job was to break up enemy alliances by creating awkward love triangles. And secondly, when that failed, just assassins. Nice. <laughs> Sounds like all fucking women. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Shot through the heart. You're too late. You give, give love, love a bad name. A bad name. Uh, <laughs> stop with the fucking accents. Honestly. I wasn't doing that. That was my impression of Brian Adams. Was it? <laughs> and I will do anything for love. But I want to do... That's meatloaf. Shit. That's meatloaf. I was trying to do the Robin Hood song. That's all right. Uh, do you know what? I think it's socially acceptable to do a Transylvanian accent as well, so you can cake <laughs> that one. <laughs> I would count to any number for love. But I won't, but I won't count, count that. to pie. <laughs> I won't... <laughs> So unsurprisingly, given that their job was to create love triangles and murder people, there are quite a few Bollywood soap operas about these women, as well as quite a few uh, folk stories. So the breaking up alliances thing was was pretty easy. When she was of a suitable age, probably realistically and slightly horribly about 12 years old, uh, Vishakanya would be sent out to seduce an enemy of the emperor. Now, once this guy was well and truly besotted with her, she would sneak off and then seduce his allies. And once they were also in love with her, she would deliberately leave clues and hints to ensure that all the men involved <laughs> found out that the love of their life had been stolen away from them. And by all accounts, in a time of warring an incredibly vain young Indian princes, this was an incredibly effective political tactic. <laughs> Did they have Tinder back then? I don't think they really had Tinder. I think it was one of the, you know, the classic exchanging small portraits. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, flattering angles. Yeah. So yeah, this this tactic worked really well, as anyone who's seen a couple's tiff in a curry house on a Friday night can attest. Give someone uh, a couple of now, booners. That was and racist. A... No, it wasn't. I'm talking about white British people fighting in curry houses. You you weren't. Well, that's yes, racist I was. as well. You're making <laughs> generalisations about white English people. <laughs> yes, I am, Tom. And let me tell you, when they're drunk in a curry house after a lover's tiff, it's nothing but a whirlwind of flying booners vomiting <laughs> up kingfisher and drunken haymakers. <laughs> kingfisher lager everywhere. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Bombadom smashed over your head. <laughs> None to the face. <laughs> absolutely, yep. <laughs> Take a roti to the gut. Mango pickle in the eyeball. <laughs> oh, imagine lime pickle in your eyeball. Ooh. It's, it's worse enough on the palate, let alone in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> Christ. Um, <laughs> I have genuinely seen a fight in a curry house before, and it is hilarious. It was between a group of drunken lads after a football match. Granted, I live in Manchester. <laughs> after a derby, and it all kicked off. I've also seen... I was in an Italian restaurant in Manchester and a guy came in who clearly escaped from a wedding party, drank four bottles of wine before his starter arrived and fell asleep onto the floor of this very posh Italian restaurant. Which just added to the atmosphere. So he clearly had a bad it? day. <laughs> I don't think it was the groom, but I don't think it might have been one of the groomsmen. Sounds like great fun. And fighting in an Italian restaurant is all part and parcel of the experience, isn't it? Because it's usually the restaurant staff that are fighting. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, in, in your typical Italian or Greek restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> They're sort of going up to each other and they're doing this with their fingers. They go, hey, buddy, you know, hey, huh? Hey, buddy, you know, huh? Mamma mia, huh? 
very, very passionate, like that, like the Italian football players. If our mother had seen her, what have you done to a restaurant? What do you bit of the parmesan on the lasagna? She would have turned her in a grave. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, getting drunk in restaurants, classically British thing to do. So the second part of the Vishakanya's job was a lot less pleasant for everyone involved including the assassins, because the Vishakanyas were trained to poison their enemies, sometimes with their very presence alone, well, at least legend has it, because they were raised almost from birth to be immune to every conceivable poison. And this really is pretty nasty. The Emperor's men fed the assassins as they were growing up on a diet of microdosed poisons and also microdosed antidotes. And it was enough to make that them... fucking vaccination, Sam. It's like vaccination. It is. What to kids. It's what they're doing to our kids today. Yep, absolutely. Firstly, they give them polio, and then they give them fucking mercury, Tom. And you know what? This whole coronavirus, Big Pharma. I tell you, it's Big yep. Pharma. Coronavirus absolutely. being spread. There's only one person making money out of it, and that's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that and whether I'd have to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where I was going with it either. Anyway. So they were given microdoses of poisons and microdoses of antidotes as they were growing up, just fed into their diet, which was enough to make them very, very, very ill, but hopefully not enough to kill them. Uh, in fact, the name Vishakanya is a Sanskrit word meaning poisoned maiden. And this process was called Mithridatism. And most of the girls put through the process did die. It was relatively unusual for any of these girls to survive to be old enough, at about 12 years old, to go out into the world and start sleeping around and murdering people. So, so who's the serial killer you're talking about here? Is it the people that were grooming or, or the ladies themselves? <laughs> Could be either. Take your pick. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but what this did mean is that for the few who survived, by the time they were old enough to go out and uh, make their way in the world, they were absolutely lethal because they could drop poison into food or wine, take the first bite or sip to encourage their prey that it was completely safe to do so, and then let them eat or drink it and die. They could even, legend has it, kill them through bodily contact alone, basically through sex, <laughs> and never be spotted or even suspected. You say sex that awkwardly again, please, Sam. Sex. <laughs> like a 16-year-old boy. Fam we're a family friend. <laughs> That's how I feel quite a lot of the time with this podcast. Hanky-panky. <laughs> Hanky-hanky-panky. <laughs> well, that sounded a bit like Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> yeah. We're a family-friendly podcast, Tom. What can I say? We're a family-friendly podcast. In fact, there's even a legend that Aristotle warned Alexander the Great about being seduced by Indian beauties due to the risk of their being secret assassins. One legend even has it that Alexander was actually finally killed by one of these girls, given to him as a gift by the defeated Indian King Porus, presumably shortly after he <clears throat> absorbed King Porus's empire. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the thing is, Tom, there's actually no evidence for any of this. Whilst the cult is mentioned in detail in the uh, Arthur Shastra, my mother-in-law, there's no actual verifiable evidence from any major historical chronicles of the time with evidence for these women. There's an awful lot of folk tales, and there are literally hundreds of deaths blamed on them over the years but no credible account of one ever actually being captured or identified or the eventual fate of the movement as a whole. It's entirely possible that they were real because a state-sanctioned group of female assassins and spies kind of makes total sense, really. It's a very good way of infiltrating the courts of your enemies. But literal poison maidens? 
who could kill people by bodily contact might be a little bit far-fetched but i think it's a pretty good story yeah it's a good story and what i will say as well to back this up scientifically is having traveled quite extensively in india the locals are very good at adapting to poisons which kill most outsiders <laughs> i almost said that earlier on absolutely <laughs> that is the proven. area of the world where evolution <laughs> is still very much at work yeah isn't it as evidenced by any time you eat food from an Indian market stall or service station or accidentally drink a bit of the tap water, the, the locals are immune to things which would kill you. All the kids swimming in the Ganges. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every day they go for a swim in the Ganges amongst all the heavy metals. I've, well, I pollution. forget what the level of, um, I, can't, it's cu- I think it's called cuneiform bacteria, something like that. But basically the level of harmful bacteria in the Ganges is something like 18 million times the amount that's considered safe to drink. Would, yeah, and what would close a beach in um, yeah. a Western country? Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. So yes, if anyone can adapt to a multitude of deadly poisons, it's young people in India. Definitely. So anyway, that's my story number one, Tom. Story number two oh, is fuck from... me. You got another one? Well, shall I just keep it to one? Shall I keep it to the <laughs> one and save <laughs> go, the other one for go. another time? You go. You go. So I'll try and keep this one then relatively short anyway. So story number two is from another altogether less picky group of assassins who wreaked havoc on India from the 13th to the 19th century. So incredibly long-lived organisation. They were a cult or tribe known as the Thuggies or Tuggies. And they were absolute arseholes. Ready or not, here they come. That's the Fugees, Tom. Not the oh, same. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. These were the thuggies. It's where we get the word thug from today. That's good. Yeah. Good etymology. Yes, it is, isn't it? I was I was pleased when I discovered that. And thug or thuggy actually uh, means deceiver in Sanskrit, which is exactly what these people did. They were basically a cult, often called one of the world's first true mafia organisations, which grew out of Muslim refugees in the 1300s. Just put it out there. I think most human societies have been mafia organisations from the start. Well, yes. Most organised religions have been mafia organisations from the start. And and everything else. And societies. (laughs) And kingdoms. Fine, I'll take your point on that. This particular mafia organisation grew out of a group of Muslim refugees in the 1300s. There's various stories about exactly when and where they came from, but the first mention is in a book called The History of the Firuz Shah by a guy called Zia-uddin Birani, dating back to 1356, which states that they were born of a group of around a 1,000 men exiled from Delhi after a murder in 1290. Other interpretations say that these groups existed, but they weren't really formalised into a proper group until the British came along and got rid of the armies and personal bodyguard units of a lot of the local rulers once the British Empire and the British East India Company expanded. And so you suddenly found yourself with an awful lot of very highly trained, quite highly educated Indian noblemen roaming the countryside with murder on their minds. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, the methods of the group didn't change much over the course of 500 years, and they were horrible methods so what the thuggies would do is travel the indian countryside in gangs of 10 to 200 befriending travelers that they met along the way they would often be accompanied by children or in disguise as mystics and doctors Um, anyone who's ever been to india knows that that's still a fairly common disguise for petty criminals (laughs) and preying on tourists that was (laughs) preying on travelers fuck me (laughs) so what they would do is they would hang around in the road waiting for passing travellers and then they would make friends with them and gain the trust of their victims over the course of several days they would travel with them saying that oh let's gang together for safety there's bandits on this road and would wait until they reached a place that the gang knew was safe for a murder and these places like 
like elephants' graveyards were passed down from generation to generation. Only the gangs knew about them, passed from father to son, and they were known as a belle, places which were very good to dispose of a body. So nice soft earth, lots of crocodiles nearby, you know, yeah. places to make people disappear in. <laughs> Big lime pits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For example, good deep wells. And what would happen is, one night, as the victim or victims slept, one of the gang would start playing music to conceal the crime and as a signal to their friends. Other thuggies would then pile on in... Ready, Anna. Here I come. You can't hide. You can't hide. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to kill you. you. <laughs> and cut your throat. <laughs> so other thuggies would then pile on in and garrote their victims using scarves or ropes. Uh, one would act as a lookout. One would act as the murderer. Several more would come in to carry the loot away, and a couple would be employed to very carefully bury or dispose of the body in such a way as no trace down, of the victims would ever be down. found. Get down, <laughs> deeper and down. Are we done? This is the last time we put Govinda on the music while we're trying to commit these murders. He doesn't take this job seriously. Go on, hand over the orcs lead. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Take Give the me spot. Spotify. Come get, on. Yeah, get, get, get it off shuffle. <laughs> the Venger bus is coming and everybody's dancing. New York to San Francisco. <laughs> uh, they really were a family. Oh, God, no. They really were a family affair. <laughs> Family. Oh, I thought you were going to go straight to It's a family affair <laughs> You could choose either of them, yeah <laughs> And uh, membership of the tribe was hereditary As I said, it was passed down from father to son Marriages between robber bands were very commonplace And cemented alliances in different territories Alternatively, you could actually study to become a thuggy You could go to thuggy school In a similar way to studying to be a beggar in big Indian cities today Literally, there were gurus who taught the basics and examined pupils on their aptitude to murder. Quite often, if the parents of a group of travellers were killed, their kids would be adopted into the tribe and raised as their own. It was always useful to have kids around because they made very good, very good lookouts. Up, so I, so I can, can kill, kill some <laughs> And they were brutal, Tom. No one was spared, from traders to pilgrims to farmers. It didn't matter what your social status was. If these guys found you, you would be murdered. The only people they had any real level of respect for floor. was... You what, better uh, not kill the group. Shut up. DJ. <laughs> I'm going to burn this fucking podcast down. <laughs> I'll shut up in your face. <laughs> What's the matter, girl? Hey, got no respect. Hey, why do you look so sad? Hey, it's not so bad. It's a nicer place. i shut up in your face. So how effective were they as serial killers? <laughs> Well, pretty good. According to the 1979 Guinness Book of Records, the Thuggies killed two million people across their history as an organisation. Wow. What a bunch of psycho killers. Guess could say. I'm not surprised you didn't follow that with fuck off, Tom. Yes, fuck off. I wonder if I can mute your microphone. Other estimates have got slightly lower numbers because they take a different look at when they were formalised as a society. So some people say it was when the British came along and put the start date of the group at the 1680s and say that between then and the mid-19th century, they killed about 50,000 people. So still pretty prolific serial killers. And it got so bad that the British Indian government kept running totals every year of the atrocities committed by the thuggies. 
and an entire a little, like, div- <laughs> a little bit like a blue peter appeal <laughs> yeah they had the totalizer, <laughs> totalizer. <laughs> oh we only need 300 more murders and we can afford a lifeboat <laughs> now let's go to a primary school in bridport who murdered three grannies yesterday <laughs> disposed of their body in the canal <laughs> brilliant so yeah the, the British set up an entire division to hunt down these cultists so the British first discovered the group at the beginning of the 19th century and spent the next decade launching full scale military interventions against any thuggy communities they found and executing every single one they came across absolute slaughter spree on the part of the British as well before finally realising that actually they weren't fighting a thousand separate groups of robbers but one organised tribe spreading across the entire Indian subcontinent or at least the north and centre of it who had kind of feelers and subdivisions across the entire country as a result, the British decided that they would never be able to defeat these groups by basically playing whack-a-mole with them. Instead, they needed something a bit more involved. So they set up the Thuggy and Dacoity, which is another word for uh, robbery, department under a guy called Colonel William Sleeman in 1830. Now, this was a full-scale, and in fact probably the world's first, full-scale secret service dedicated to infiltrating organised crime syndicates. They would find their way into a thuggy tribe, they would capture informants and turn them to their side and track their actions up to the top of the tree to try and take down the leaders of the pack. And this was an intelligence operation that was a full century ahead of its time. In fact, nothing similar came along really until kind of Prohibition America in the 1920s. In fact, the organisation lasted until 1904, so it had a really quite long life as well. And it's the forefather of the current Indian Police Intelligence Service. Even then, the thuggies managed to pretty effectively resist by swapping names and identities, so one lead would apparently be killed, only to reappear somewhere else months and months later. In the end, though, the British did simply wear down the tribe and they slowly broke up into independent roving bands of robbers and eventually just melted off into history. Ironically, actually, the thuggies never targeted the British because they were worried about reprisals from the British Indian government, so Englishmen were left to travel the roads in peace and actually became beacons, kind of meccas, if you like, for travelling Indian natives for want of a better phrase who would huddle around them for safety so overall the thuggies pretty bad people tom however there is one man alone a leader known as thug beran who is considered the world's most prolific serial killer at least if you take his own claims as gospel according to manuscripts following his capture he pleaded guilty to involvement in 931 murders between 1790 and 1830 amateur <laughs> what was he thinking it's just that's a Sunday for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm 34 and I've already done 900. Yep. Easy. <laughs> Easy money. Um, in fact, he actually strangled 125 men himself. And he had a special method for doing this. Inside his scarf, which he used to garrote people, he'd sewn a metal medallion. And he was so skilled with it that he could lasso a victim from a distance and get the medallion onto their Adam's apple so that when he pulled back, it crushed their windpipe as he reeled it in, which really is pretty horrible and pretty murderous, even by serial killer standards. So I think we can safely call that a spree and call him a serial killer. Unsurprisingly, he was hanged in 1840, so he didn't have a happy end. And so they were killing these people for their their belongings? Just they were, they robbing. Were yep. Yeah, yeah, they were Just rob- robbing. Robbers. There you go, Tom. A brief history of Indian serial killers and assassins very nice and a terrible musical interludes <laughs> very interesting well it's getting quite late so i'm going to encourage <laughs> us to 
to fuck to off. De- to decide on a subject for next week. Go on, you have an idea, go for it. I found a source that I think you are going to enjoy hearing about. Go on. Uh, so can we go for poetry, please? Poetry? Oh, God. Okay, yeah, poetry. Done. <laughs> Simples. <laughs> Simples. Okay. Right, well, come back next week for a delve into what... Oh, Christ, poetry. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please do leave us a review on your podcasting app of choice. Uh, leave nice comments about us. You can also find us on Instagram at that was genius, Twitter at that underscore was underscore genius, and Facebook that was genius podcast. And do uh, well, actually, no, I'm not going to mention the website yet. That'll be a couple of weeks yet. But do remember, we've got a new website coming out full of exciting and fun things, big things on the horizon for 2020. Right. Rattle through that. Go to bed, Tom. Thank you. Night. Good night. Nighty night. Bye, everyone.